Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Central Asian Studies. I'm your host of the channel, Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, and today I'm speaking with Aaron Desar about his new book, Soviet and Muslim, The Institutionalization of Islam in Central Asia. Aaron, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, Aaron is an assistant professor of history at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Aaron, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. My, uh, my name is Aaron, and I uh, received my PhD from the History Department at Harvard in 2010. I uh, worked under uh, Terry Martin there. And uh, before that, I lived actually in, um, I lived in Uzbekistan, one of the countries that uh, is examined in the book. I lived there for three years. In two of those, I was working for an NGO that was involved with um, religious and educational exchanges uh, between Uzbekistan and the U.S. And uh, I was also a Fulbright Fellow there doing a research project on Islamic shrines. And before that, I got my undergrad at Stanford. Uh, I grew up in uh, Acton, Massachusetts, near where the Revolutionary War started. And uh, my name is actually Turkish. I was born in the U.S., but my parents are from, from Turkey. So that's my, uh, that's my background. So in your book, you talk about how you got into Soviet history. It's a really interesting story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. I actually, uh, when I was an undergrad, wasn't even all that interested in history, wasn't planning on becoming a historian. As I, um, as I described in my acknowledgments section, I was uh, much more interested in Hawaii, actually. And uh, when I was um, a sophomore, I think, I took a seminar on island ecology and the professor, um, who, who's still there, I believe, Peter Vitusek, was doing a project with NSF funding on um, not just feral pigs in Volcano National Park, but actually feral pig droppings. And he was looking for uh, he was looking for undergraduates basically to come and assist him collecting these droppings, which is which is no small feat actually, because those pigs are really really smart. So at any rate, there were four people selected. I was one of them. And uh, I, I wasn't so interested in the, the feral pigs, but I was very interested in Hawaiian history, which I studied. I even started learning the language while I was there. And when I came back, I approached my undergraduate advisor, Mark Mankal, who um, basically decided for himself that because I was a native speaker of Turkish, I needed to focus on Central Asia. And being young and malleable and not really knowing what I wanted to do in life, I sort of... Uh, took the bait. And, and here I am. Largely, this book ended up happening because uh, Mark decided that it was a book that needed to be written. So I wish I had a, uh, I wish I had more agency in the process. But that was kind of how I got on this, on this path. <laughs> well, I think we're very glad that Mark got you into your field, because the, the book is really fascinating. So how did you come to write Soviet and Muslim? Well, there were a number of, um, there were a number of approaches to the study of Islam in the Soviet Union that um, didn't sit right with me. That even when I was, uh, after I graduated, when I was a Fulbrighter in Uzbekistan and, and actually traveled to hundreds of shrines, not only in Uzbekistan, but in Tajikistan and Turkmenistan as well. Um, a lot of what I saw, a lot of what I heard about the Soviet period, and, and this was in the early 2000s, so this is a good maybe 10 years after the Soviet Union collapsed, not that long in the grand scheme of things. A lot of the stories I heard from sheikhs at these shrines, from pilgrims there, from people I got to know in the Islamic community in Tashkent where I lived, really didn't correspond to the image uh, that was portrayed in a lot of the literature I'd read about uh, the Soviet Union being this intensely anti-religious and anti-Islamic place. And that was something that interested me. Uh, I wanted to interrogate that more to find out what really happened. What really was it like to be a shrine-going or mosque-going Muslim in the Soviet Union? Uh, what was the uh, status of Islamic institutions and then also just to offer, uh, at the most basic level, the, the kind of rudimentary thing historians do, which is to offer a periodization. There were 74 years of Soviet history. It's inconceivable that they were all the same. Uh, clearly, the treatment of religion, just as with the treatment of agriculture or alcohol or women's rights or anything else, uh, clearly it fluctuated depending on the political current of 
the time. And I suspected that this must be the case with Islam as well. And this is one of the key arguments I try to make in the book, that things do actually dramatically change depending on which time period you're looking at. So uh, there was that element, a desire to dig deeper and to problematize some of the received wisdom. Um, I also noticed very early on when I started studying Central Asia uh, that a, a lot of the study of Central Asian history wasn't placed in the broader context of the Islamic world, that there was kind of um, a, a treatment of Central Asia as a part of Russia, which it, 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 I guess technically was in the Russian Empire. I mean, it was a part of the Russian Empire at any rate. Um, but in terms of the academic division of labor, particularly with the rise of so-called nationality studies, it was sort of assumed that the Iron Curtain, the fact that a lot of these transregional networks that had connected Central Asia to other parts of the Islamic world were disrupted during the Soviet period, that this was assumed to have meant that Central Asia lost any common ground with the modern contemporary experience of other parts of the Islamic world, such as Pakistan, Turkey, Iran, other parts of the Middle East. So <clears throat> one thing I was interested in doing was finding out how the development of Islamic institutions uh, ideas, how the interaction between Islam and the state, how the state's attempts to regulate Islam in this militantly atheist context, how those attempts compared to comparable but less militant and less violent and less comprehensive policies in secular Muslim states like, uh, like Turkey and Egypt, and also uh, Islamic states that are not secular, like Iran and Saudi Arabia but which also are highly centralized, particularly vis-a-vis the religious sphere. These commonalities, uh, I, I, I thought, would hopefully help put Central Asia in a broader global context and um, perhaps to some extent de-emphasize communist exceptionalism and show that communism paradoxically ends up arriving at an analysis of Islam that is pretty similar to that developed by, say, the Kemalists in Turkey. So that, that's a fascinating argument. There are two parts about that I think are really interesting. The idea that communism didn't actually change the development of Islam in Central Asia that much differently from their, their counterparts in other parts of the Islamic world, but also the idea that our general understanding of the oppression of religion isn't necessarily the case for Muslims in Central Asia. And so you start your book looking at World War II and its world, I mean, and its involvement in policy changes towards Islam. Can you talk about that? Sure. The, uh, the argument I tried to make is that the, uh, the, the, the catalyst or the inspiration for the developments described in the book, which is the institutionalization of Islam, uh, actually in their beginning had nothing to do with Islam at all. Uh, Stalin was concerned about uh, the existential threat posed by Nazi Germany. Um, he was ideologically in a very, very difficult position, having to uh, justify an alliance, not so much with the U.S. I don't think that was necessarily the difficult thing. I think the really bitter pill to swallow was justifying an alliance with the British Empire, uh, being a Germanophile, being somebody who, in good Leninist fashion, loathed the British, uh, he was in a in, in a very difficult position. So uh, I think it's clear that he was concerned about mobilizing uh, Russian patriotism uh, to um, partly to compensate for the uh, apocalyptic violence he visited upon the officer corps and the Red Army, and to somehow put up some resistance to Hitler as he was marching toward Moscow, but he was also very concerned about public opinion in the U.S. and Great Britain, which of course had greatly advertised a lot of the anti-religious violence, the execution of clergy, the melting of church bells, uh, uh, all this kind of of anti-religious violence that had taken place during the Cultural Revolution and during the Great Terror, uh, and of course during the Civil War at the outset of Bolshevik rule. Uh, What's important about this is that Islam, I don't think, was a consideration at all, nor was Buddhism. So when he decided that he needed to somehow normalize church-state relations in the service of uh, mobilizing society and having a tenable alliance with the capitalist West, uh, there was no way as a good Marxist he could only normalize relations with Christianity and uh, uh, with Orthodox Christianity and 
Catholicism, it had to be normalized with respect to, uh, well, theoretically, all the religions in the USSR. But here is where the here is where another argument of the book comes forward that uh, a lot of a lot of the scholarship on religion generally in the USSR has not acknowledged the continuity between czarist policies toward religion and Soviet policies toward religion. Uh, Stalin didn't normalize, uh, didn't institutionalize uh, the old believer faith. He didn't attempt to institutionalize uh, the various forms of uh, animism or syncretistic Christianity practiced up in the far north. He chose in fact, the same religions that the Tsarist Russians had chosen to institutionalize. And among these were Islam and Buddhism. So I tried to argue that Islam and Buddhism were given bureaucratic, legally recognized, and to some degree legally protected institutions within the framework of Soviet law, almost as an afterthought. It wasn't done deliberately, and there was really no discernible attention or thought devoted to what the long-term consequences of uh, institutionalizing Islam and Buddhism might be. So these reforms that he uh, undertakes in 1943 and 1944 to uh, renounce the anti-religious violence of uh, prior decades in Soviet history and to basically accept that religion would more or less be henceforward a permanent presence, however undesirable in Soviet society, uh, this was something that was decided on without any attention to the specificities of Islamic history, Islamic institutions. And that is why, sure enough, the lower-level policymakers who um, Stalin delegated to figure out how to normalize relations between Islam and the state reverted to the czarist model of setting up muftiates. Uh, I call them muftiates. The technical term is Muslim spiritual assemblies. Uh, which were meant to be, as, as Robert Cruz says in his book, Prophet and Tsar, Churches for Islam. Uh, whether they ended up actually turning into churches is another question, but that was definitely the intention. Uh, the Soviet state did not follow the path that other secularizing uh, regimes in the Islamic world, like Turkey and Egypt did, of creating ministries of waqf affairs, uh, presidencies of religious affairs, these kinds of formal religious affairs ministries under the state. Instead, it opted to set up uh, nominally independent religious organizations that, of course, would very much be under the thumb of the state. But their exact responsibilities were never clearly delineated because it doesn't seem this is something Stalin was particularly interested in after the Great Terror of 1937-1938. Really, religion, I think, drops to the bottom of the priority level. And uh, that, I think, helps explain why an organization like the Central Asian Muftiate, which I study in this book, was able to become so powerful before Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign, which began in 1958. Uh, it, really, it really takes off in a way that is totally stunning by the standards of Soviet history. It becomes effectively, uh, nearly, in some respects, a nearly completely independent Islamic organization, collecting taxes on its own, appointing people on its own and is actually encouraged to do so by the main bureaucratic organization within the Soviet party state that is tasked with monitoring it, the Council for the Affairs of Religious Cults. So things spin out of control very quickly, I think. The official Islamic sphere becomes much bigger and much more politically vibrant than Stalin ever intended it to. But I think that was primarily possible because the state was not interested in religion during this period, during and after World War II. It had other stuff to worry about. Um, chief among them, of course, the incorporation of half of the European continent, which seems to have been a major thing that preoccupied Stalin in the final decade or so of his life. Islam really was not an issue during this period for him. And I, I have not seen him writing or commenting about Islam at any point after the 1930s, actually, which is quite interesting. Um, except, of course, for the one or two telegrams he sent thanking Muslims during World War II for their patriotic contributions. So all this suggests to me, if I could, by way of concluding my now really overlong response to your question, all this suggests to me that um, the, the sort of cultural revolution or great terror framework for understanding the Soviet state's policies toward religion is really inadequate for understanding the role of religion in society after World War II. 
none of this is to say that religion is completely free. It's not. The book recounts many instances, not so much of anti-religious violence, but certainly of anti-religious measures, um, some of them very highly unpleasant, though not necessarily violent. But uh, nevertheless, it's a different story. And in, in many ways, with respect to Islam, at least, I would say the USSR and Central Asia, especially, it, it's just a totally different country after World War II. It's like apples and oranges to compare, uh, uh, to compare the status of religion, even during Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign, to what you had during the Cultural Revolution and the Great Terror with all the closures and confiscations and uh, uh, seizures of religious uh, objects and books and, of course, the mass executions, mass imprisonment, torture, the destruction of religious personnel and religious knowledge. <clears throat> so the way you describe the Muftiids and the, it seems like the independence that they had, you talk about in the book how in the 40s or following World War II, they are this progressive presence and within the, the Soviet government when it comes to their understandings of Islam in Central Asia and how that works. Can you tell us a little bit about the Muftiyat and the Council for the Affairs of Religious Cults and how they work together in that? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, that, that's a great question. And, and uh, progressive, of course, since we're in America, is a tricky word. I think that um, they, they use the word progressive um, in a in a different way than we use it. Uh, by progressive, both Soviet bureaucrats monitoring religious figures and the uh, sort of uh, pro-Soviet Islamic scholars who worked for SADUM, which is the acronym for this organization, this Islamic Muftiyat, uh, they both had a, a vision of, of an Islamic faith that would somehow fit in a modern socialist society. As with many things in Soviet and Russian history, this was a tacit kind of arrangement because the Soviet, uh, the, the Communist Party never really until the late 1980s actually renounced its struggle with religion. So technically speaking, the plan was always that the communist utopia, whenever it was going to arrive, whether it was going to be by 1980 or Khrushchev said or at some other point, was not going to have any religion in it. So this argument had to be made really tacitly. It couldn't really be made very openly, which, which made things very tricky and very difficult. And particularly in the first 10 to 15 years of the Muftiyat's existence, I try to show in one section of chapter two, I believe, uh, that Soviet bureaucrats and uh, pro-Soviet Islamic scholars did not necessarily agree on what constituted progressive modern Islam. It was rare for Islamic scholars to talk about kind of a socialist Islam. They would talk about a modern progressive Islam. Um, but Soviet bureaucrats would talk about the progressive credentials of Islamic scholars, and they would talk about, above all, the condemnation of shrine pilgrimage, uh, the promotion of women's rights, um, anti-veil activism, which was a big theme in pre-World War II, uh, 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 pre-World War II Central Asian and Soviet Islamic history generally. So when they discovered that, when these Soviet bureaucrats discovered that um, some of these Islamic scholars uh, working for Saddam either didn't have a problem with polygamy or in some cases themselves practiced polygamy uh, after 30 years of Soviet history, uh, that their wives wore veils, that they had sometimes patriarchal and um, even misogynistic views of women, and that some of them themselves directly profited from the donations left by uh, pilgrims at shrines, it became a real problem. There was a real disconnect between the sort of definition of progressive Islam that was being heralded by these Soviet bureaucrats and uh, Islamic scholars. These sort of kinks or these conflicts were worked out by the 1950s uh, under the leadership of one man who is kind of the, depending on your perspective, either the hero or the anti-hero of the book, um, his name was Ziauddin Babahanov. He was the second Mufti of Saddam. And this is somebody who really, I think, it, it, he was definitely had a lot of political acumen and was very strategic and very intelligent and very crafty. But I think genuinely believed that there was no conflict between Islam and Soviet communism. He really believed that Central Asian Muslims like himself could be Soviet patriots, they could be communists, and they could be Muslim at the same time. 
And he was the one who really started to try to bring his organization's vision of a progressive Islam in harmony with that of the state. He made it a requirement that most of the Muftiyat's correspondence be conducted in Russian. His father, the first Mufti, didn't even know Russian at all, couldn't even read Cyrillic script, in fact. Um, he rapidly fired people who practiced polygamy. He outlawed, uh, or rather abolished, the um, observance of a number of Central Asian Islamic rites associated with uh, the spring holiday, for example, Navruz, uh, saint worship, uh, magic, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, tried actually in the one Islamic school that the Muftiate ran, tried to reduce traditional Central Asian Islamic topics like cosmology and Persian poetry in favor, A, of classical Arabic, but B, also Russian literature. So his vision of sort of modern socialist Islamic education included things like reading Tolstoy and uh, uh, and um, and Gogol. I was going to say Dostoevsky. I don't think Dostoevsky was in there. He wasn't a fan of Dostoevsky. So at any rate, we see that there's this uh, radical sort of reconfiguration within this admittedly circumscribed sphere of this organization. There's this radical reconfiguration of what what Islam actually is, what its political role is, and what its relationship is to the state. And this, again, looks a lot, if we're talking about the 1950s, this looks to me a lot like what is going on in Turkey during this period, just to bring the transnational perspective back into this. Uh, Turkey, at the moment that it uh, shifts from one party to multi-party rule, witnesses a really rapid expansion in the sphere of official religion. And uh, many of the discussions that are going on in Kemalist Turkey, uh, uh, although the context is different, are, are quite similar. How, how Islam is at heart truly a progressive religion, how Islam is as modern as Christianity, how there's no conflict between being a modern secular Turk and being a, uh, a, a sincere, God-fearing Muslim, that Islam promotes science and modernity and equal rights and technology and innovation and all these kinds of arguments that are going on, some of them admittedly at a very superficial level. But nevertheless, there's an unmistakable parallel, which suggests that communism, in this, communism as a distinctive ideology isn't necessarily the driving force behind some of these ideas that are being pro- proposed about crafting a progressive Islam. That it has more to do with the growing reach of these kinds of modern centralized states uh, and how that reach is impacting Islamic scholars, Islamic communities, Islamic institutions that have a long history of being relatively independent from the state. So the issue of progressivism is, a, is, an, is an important one, I think. So you were talking about Babahanov and how he starts making these changes to kick out the people who are still practicing polygamy. And kind of, he kind of consolidates the power of the Sadum. But I was really interested in the fact that the condemning of shrine visiting, why is that a big issue to them that people are making these pilgrimage, pilgrimages? Uh, well, let me first say that the condemnation of shrine pilgrimage was nothing new in uh, Central Asia and especially in the broader Islamic world. Uh, it's something that goes back to the Middle Ages. And in Central Asia in particular, uh, condemnation of uh, shrine pilgrimage and of specific rites practiced at shrines actually uh, was at the root of a movement like the Jadidist movement that emerged in uh, Samarkand and Bukhara in the late 19th century. So uh, in, in condemning shrines, Ziauddin was on, on fairly solid Islamic ground. He was also on fairly well-tread historical ground in the Central Asian context. What is interesting and distinctive about Sadum's condemnation of shrines is that A, uh, the Communist Party viewed shrines as even more threatening than mosques. It viewed shrines as places where, uh, first of all, in colonial fashion, it viewed them as unhygienic. It viewed the shrines as places that were impossible to monitor. Uh, uh, it, it, it viewed shrines and the cult of saints generally as a breeding ground for fanaticism, superstition, and ultimately anti-Soviet sentiment. Uh, And I think one thing that is important to understand here is that 
during the Cultural Revolution and the Great Terror, the Communist Party had been much more successful in shutting down and confiscating mosques and madrasas, that is, Islamic schools, than it had been in shutting down shrines. Uh, and that partly has to do with the fact that if you include family neighborhood shrines, there were many more of them than there were mosques. And also shrines weren't all, uh, didn't all have structures. Some of them were natural formations. Central Asia has holy grottos, it has holy streams, it has holy mountains, uh, holy mud baths, all these kinds of things. So uh, there was a great deal of apprehension within the Soviet state. I think Ziauddin genuinely viewed shrine pilgrimage as something that was un-Islamic, but he also saw an opportunity to capitalize on the Soviet state's xenophobia about shrines. Uh, in the service of his, his argument and his, his strenuous effort to portray Islam as a modern pro-socialist religion. Castigating shrines, attempting to shut them down or take control of them ideally, uh, doing things like putting up fences around shrines so pilgrims couldn't touch them or circumambulate, circumambulate them. This essentially made him, in the eyes of a lot of Central Asians, an, an anti-Soviet activist. And uh, that was a price he was willing to pay because it put him on the same page with the Communist Party. It increased his pro-socialist bona fides. It suggested that uh, Islam could fit into the kind of modern metropolis that the Soviets were trying to build in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, which eventually became the USSR's gateway to the east uh, and the fourth largest city in the Soviet Union and had a lot of shrines in it uh, that foreign visitors were never allowed to see. So uh, all, all, of these, all of these things helped Saddam enhance its stature within the eyes of the state. But as I argue within the book, they uh, significantly diminish Saddam's stature in the eyes of many Central Asian Muslims, or at least the Central Asian Muslims whose perspectives I was able to access in the kind of official source, uh, uh, source materials I was using. And if you talk to Central Asians today, that's something you'll hear about as well. You'll, you'll hear the argument that uh, Saddam was uh, uh, too accommodating of uh, Soviet criticism of religion, that Soviet went too, that Saddam went too far to, to try to please the Soviet Union. At the end of the day, Saddam was between a rock and a hard place, uh, between a pretty religious population that didn't want to abandon Islam, and between a communist party that, despite its uh, estuel of anti-religious violence after World War II, continued to believe that ultimately religion would wither away and that it didn't really have a place in a, the kind of modern socialist society that the Communist Party was trying to build. This tension at the end of the day was a very difficult one to resolve, I think. But I tried to argue that, however imperfectly, Saddam did find itself in a position where it did actually occupy the position of a medium or bridge between the population and the state, despite the fact that it had many violent detractors within the same groups, the population and the state. You had Muslims who refused to have anything to do with Saddam. I think they were relatively small in number. I think you had even more Communist Party bureaucrats who viewed Saddam as something that needed to be wiped out. These were diehard anti-religious hardliners who lamented the fact that Stalin had lost interest in the struggle with religion after World War II. One of these uh, hardliners was Nikita Khrushchev, who, whose anti-religious campaign I devote a whole, uh, a whole chapter to. So let's get into this. So I wanted to talk about first the the ideas of the Muslims in Central Asia. So you talked a little bit about how a, quite a few of them were detractors from Saddam. How did they look at Saddam? What did they think about it in terms of its relation to the Soviet state, but also its relation to practicing Muslims in Central Asia? Yes. So your question concerns the man in the street, to put it colloquially. And as I try to uh, confront this issue head on in the beginning of the book, the documents I use are of official provenance for the most part. I uh, did do some interviews, although a lot of people refused to talk to me. And, um, and I'm, I think that's because of the political climate that existed with respect to Islam in Uzbekistan at the time that I was uh, doing this research in the early to mid 2000s. But suffice it to say that uh, the documents I used, which came from the Council for the Affairs of Religious Cults, as well as from Sadum, the Muftiate, 
are uh, helpful for understanding official perspectives, organizational perspectives on Islam, they're quite problematic for getting at social history and what ordinary people thought about uh, thought about Sadum. I, um, I I don't believe I um, I don't believe I mentioned my mother-in-law in the book. My mother-in-law lives in Tashkent and was alive throughout the time period that I'm looking at and lived in Uzbekistan. She lived maybe five miles away from the headquarters of Sadum and had never heard of it. So uh, I, I don't try to exaggerate the impact of Sadum. I don't think it was an organization that mattered or was necessarily present in the lives of every Muslim in Central Asia. Uh, the perspectives one does get from people outside of the Muftiate um, often are complaints. They're either complaints about the behavior of individual Communist Party bureaucrats, often asking the Council for the Religious Affairs of Religious Cults to overrule decisions made by local government officials. And then you get complaints uh, about individual Sadum staff members. Uh, often the accusations have to do with theft of, of charitable donations. Uh, they could also sometimes involve high-handed behavior and um, uh, accusations of moral impropriety, adultery, uh, homosexuality, drug abuse, alcoholism, gluttony. These are the kinds of accusations that people leveled against uh local imams and other staff members at local mosques. The uh, argument I tried to make or the case I tried to make with the caveat that I don't have an ideal source base. I don't think there is actually an ideal source base for looking at religion in the Soviet Union, especially Islam, is that a lot of the accusations directed at Sadum, all of them, in fact, had to do with the behavior of individual staff members, sometimes going all the way up to the mufti the head of the uh, Muftiate. But never did I see a petition or a letter or a recorded conversation anywhere suggesting that the existence of the Muftiate itself should be call, called into question. For, society that had, for a society that had witnessed in 1937-38 a pretty serious attempt to completely wipe out religion, I think that by and large, there was a consensus that whatever its shortcomings and whatever misgivings people might have had, nevertheless, Sadum's existence served the greater good. And that the Muftiate did, in fact, by the end of Soviet history, legitimately find itself in a position where it could claim to be a bridge or at least a vehicle for communication between the Soviet party state and Central Asian Muslims. The point I, I want to make that I think is very important and that is overlooked is that Sadum had detractors, both among Central Asian Muslims and among Communist Party bureaucrats. I think in terms of really threatening to destabilize the Islamic sphere, it's the latter category that is more important. The Communist Party bureaucrats who really resented the fact that Stalin had let go of the struggle with religion after World War II, who objected to the normalization of church-state religions in 1943-1944, and who until the very end of Soviet history uh, viewed Sadum as a totally inappropriate and even morally reprehensible presence in a socialist society. You encounter these people over and over again, uh, making trouble for Sadum whenever they can. And because Sadum becomes so powerful and also is ultimately so useful to the Soviet state, they're overruled. But uh, it's important to appreciate that a lot of the controversy about Sadum was not controversy within the Muslim community. It was controversy within the Communist Party. And this is exhibited most strikingly by the fact that one of these anti-religious detractors happened to be Nikita Khrushchev, whose anti-religious campaign I devote a whole chapter to, chapter four. So it was an organization that, uh, despite its many successes, uh, angered and alienated a lot of people. But the only people I found actually calling it for it to be destroyed entirely were Communist Party bureaucrats. And even they were small in number, particularly after the late 1950s when Sadum began to serve as a pro-Muslim voice on the international stage during Khrushchev's anti-imperial drive in the third world. And so that's an interesting idea. So it seems like Sadum was relatively successful in, in building that bridge between the state and the Muslims following uh, World War II up until Khrushchev. So how did his, you know, renewed fervor for anti-religious propaganda, how did that change Sadum's practices? But also, 
how did it change what you know central asian muslims were doing in their everyday religious practice Uh, well let me address the latter question first um the chief impact of Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign uh, during Khrushchev's tenure, at least, was the closure of major shrines in Central Asia. Uh, their transformation into museums, sometimes their outright closure, uh, many shrines that had holy springs in them with holy water, the holy water, the springs were cemented over. Many of those have been opened up again or were opened up again already in the late Soviet period. But uh, that was a dramatic impact on the many hundreds of thousands of Central Asian pilgrims who traveled often hundreds of miles to get to major shrines, and they couldn't do that anymore. In that respect, Khrushchev was pretty effective. But otherwise, I think the impact of Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign was much more significant in the long term. This is the argument I tried to make in the last chapter of the book, which deals with the 1970s and the 1980s, that uh, Khrushchev's quote-unquote harebrained scheming introduced a lot of measures that were unsustainable, untenable, uh, but that what Brezhnev does, or at least the religious policymakers under Brezhnev do, is they take a lot of these measures and they begin to institutionalize them and uh, make them omnipresent. So one example is propaganda. If you think about anti-religious propaganda, um, we all love to look at those anti-religious posters of the, you know, the godless society ridiculing and caricaturing uh, uh, religious figures. Uh, the fact is that in the 1920s and in the 1920s in particular, in, in a place like Uzbekistan, there was very little paper to go around. So, uh, there, there's some real questions about how many people actually ever saw these posters. Uh, and in Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign, when there's a revival of the kind of deliberately offensive propaganda, this is not something that was necessarily being distributed in any comprehensive fashion in elementary schools or even in workplaces. It was very much haphazard. It had to do with the drive of a local party official, uh, whether he or she actually wanted to go around conducting aggressive anti-religious propaganda. You fast forward to the mid to late 1970s. um, People I interviewed report that by that period, they had replaced offensive anti-religious propaganda with much more subtle kind of anti-religious measures such as forcing children to drink tea and water during Ramadan, that kind of thing. Um, Introducing lectures about um, human reproduction, for example, which was a favorite anti-religious theme to to, like the birds and the bees kind of thing. Uh, uh, Why Soviet propagandists thought that would lessen people's faith in God, I don't know. But at any rate, this uh, this kind of theme was not necessarily offensive in the same way as caricaturing a prominent religious figure as a pedophile or that kind of thing. You see a bit of that in Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign, but it was much more systematic. So that by the late Soviet period, the vast majority of Central Asians would not have become atheists, that wasn't the case, but would have had a much clearer picture, I think, or would have been much more aware that the Soviet Communist Party was atheist and expected its most successful and most promising citizens to become atheists as well. I don't think most Central Asians were necessarily aware of that, or at least not aware of it in the same way in earlier periods, because the anti-religious message message was not being communicated in as systemic, uh, systematic, excuse me, and as comprehensive and as efficient a fashion as it was during the 1970s. So with propaganda, you have a classic example of something that is from the 1920s, It languishes in the late Stalin period. There is no anti-religious propaganda worth speaking of. Khrushchev revives it, but he revives it in a very helter-skelter, ineffective kind of fashion. But then under Brezhnev, it's reduced in severity, but becomes much more omnipresent and arguably much more effective as a result of that. So there are other examples I could relate, a lot of them administrative and bureaucratic and maybe not as as illustrative as that uh, that of propaganda. So those, I would say, are the main impacts of Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign in the short term and the long term. And so you have him attempting to, you know, do this anti-religious push. But then on the other hand, it seems kind of paradoxical that he's also trying to show Central Asia and its Muslim population as kind of this vanguard for what the Soviet Union can do for these types of religious minorities and, and, you know, counter-colonialism in a third world. So can you talk a little bit about that? You talk about it in 
in chapter five. And I think it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Well, Khrushchev, I think, is a fascinating figure. Um, he's, he's someone when you read uh, when you read his his memoirs, he, he's a figure who elicits sympathy. Um, uh, he, he's someone whose human, whose, whose humanity I can relate to, I think in a way I can't relate to Stalin or even Lenin. Um, but he's also someone with a very dark past, as we all know. I also think he was highly intelligent and highly idealistic, and that can be a very dangerous combination. Um, I suppose being dumb and idealistic is also dangerous, but at any rate, Khrushchev constantly shoots himself in the foot. And first and foremost, before we get to the international element, I think he shoots himself in the foot domestically. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. And here I'm not saying anything new. Uh, This idea of rejuvenating authentic communism, bringing back the spirit of the cultural revolution, but at the same time repudiating mass violence. How can you possibly have a meaningful anti-religious struggle without going out and killing people? Well, it rests on this idealistic faith that people, if only the blinds are taken off of their eyes, the lenses are taken off of their eyes, that they'll see religion for what it really is. But Khrushchev is not willing to countenance the kind of violence that took place during the Cultural Revolution and, of course, the Great Terror, um, which, which we know was in Central Asia really serious. It, it's no exaggeration that, at least in some parts of Central Asia, there was a highly effective drive to completely wipe out certain parts of the region of clergy, Islamic education, uh, which already by the terror had been relegated to an underground fashion. I think it's fair to say it ceases to exist uh, uh, by the late 1930s. Many of the people who do it, doing it, who survive, go underground completely. Khrushchev is not willing to do any of that. He's not willing to torture people, at least not too many at any rate. He's not willing to do mass executions. He wants... He wants law. He wants some legality, but he wants youthful activism. He wants utopian messianism. And that, of course, is impossible. So we have this scenario where shrines are being shut down, shut down but more or less mosques are being left alone. Um, religious figures, both official and unofficial, are not being imprisoned during Khrushchev's religious campaign for the most part. The most dramatic thing Khrushchev does, aside from closing some major shrines in Central Asia, is taxing people. And of course, it's the Russian Orthodox Church that suffers the most here. I mean, the amount of, uh, uh, forgive the pun, but the levels of taxation leveled upon the church are truly of biblical proportions. I mean, it's quite remarkable, considering, uh, 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 if you consider how taxes skyrocket on things like candles uh, uh, and, and those sorts of things. In Central Asia, that's the case as well. Uh, they adopt a strategy from 1960 onward of pretty much at random picking out religious figures and um, then taxing them, you know, up to 50 times their annual income. And if they can't pay the tax, they go to prison. And they do this as a way of making an example. It's a deterrent kind of thing. What we see through all this is that these policies are not sustainable. This is not an effective way to uh, uh make religion disappear. It doesn't succeed, of course. And ultimately, the officials who are empowered by Khrushchev to figure out how his campaign will apply to Islam are really scrambling to figure out what on earth they can do if they're not allowed to go out and round up people and torture people and get confessions and do mass executions and send thousands of people to the gulag, which they're not doing during the anti-religious campaign. So uh, it's, of course, a happy thing that none of that happened, but it also makes it very messy. And it means that the campaign was doomed from the get-go. Of course, the more obvious contradiction does have to do with this paradox I point out in my fifth chapter, in the book's fifth chapter, that at the very moment that he's criticizing religion, at the very moment he's accusing clergy in the Soviet Union of either being sellouts to the West, being agents of imperialism, these kind of old Bolshevik accusations, or of being amoral and soulless and lacking any spirituality, at that very moment he discovers that he needs them to go out to combat American propaganda, as he would say, to prove that the U.S. is really an ally of the Muslim world, the third world. And um, this, this, is a, this gets into an argument of the book that is very close to my heart, um, which is that I think when we look at Islam and the Soviet Union, we tend to not think about that period of anti-colonial outreach and above all anti-British sentiment in early Soviet history. 
uh, dating from the late teens and the 1920s. That uh, the colonial world was a heavily Islamic affair. So anti-colonial activism by definition involved outreach to Muslims, even if this wasn't stated explicitly by people in the common turn or subsequent Soviet policymakers responsible for overseas outreach and propaganda. As I said, I believe much that is interesting and valuable in Russian and Soviet history is tacit and unstated. Outreach to the third world, outreach to former colonies and recently decolonized states was often outreach to Muslims and it involved outreach to Islamic organizations. So having a pretty wealthy, pretty substantial Islamic organization in one of the most important parts of the history of the Islamic world, Central Asia and Uzbekistan in particular, was a boon and an advantage that even somebody who hated religion as much as Khrushchev could not afford to ignore. So this is a paradox on the one hand, but it also represents continuity, I think, with the late 1920s and the, uh, with the late 19 teens and the late, late in the 1920s, excuse me, that uh, determination to somehow spread revolution to the world, to liberate colonized peoples, to use the Soviet Union as an example of what progress could look like for colonized Muslims. Muslims in Tsarist Central Asia, after all, had been colonized. Turkestan was effectively a colony. So I think that the sort of propaganda drive is paradoxical, but it should also be read as something genuine, and it should be read as something that Central Asian Muslims could also participate in genuinely. Soviet rule had done a lot of bad things, if I could put it crudely in Central Asia, but it had also done a lot of good things. I threw out some statistics in my introduction about um, investment into education, about the number of diploma holders, about investment into agriculture. I believe in the introduction to Chapter 3, I have some statistics about um, quality of life in places like Tashkent. There was a lot of investment being put into Central Asia. Of course, a lot was being taken from Central Asia as well. And I don't think we need to cynically dismiss Central Asian Muslims, including those at Sadum, who genuinely believed that the Soviet model had something to offer to Muslims in places like Senegal, Mauritania, India, and Indonesia. So it's interesting, for sure. And there's a chapter of international history there that allows us also, once again, to look at Islam in Central Asia as being something that isn't just regional, that has this broader international significance. I find that part very interesting. And so your your chapter that talks about these, and you talk about throughout the book, actually, these commonalities between the, the Bolshevik and Soviet approach to Central Asian Muslims, but also that approach that other states have. Do you see any communication between the Soviet state and perhaps Turkey and how they're dealing with their, their Muslim populations or is one learning from the other? Did you find any of that? I did not find one learning from the other. Uh, one can speculate that uh, uh, they, you know, even back in Tsarist times when Catherine begins to institutionalize Islam in the uh, 1770s and 1780s, that she might, be, might have been taking a cue from the Ottomans, for example, uh, you know, the Tsarist Russians regularly consulted the Ottomans about matters of Islamic law. One can always speculate that one, one empire is taking a cue from another. Uh, so I can't definitively prove that the Soviets were directly trying to emulate the Turks, but the Turks were directly trying to emulate the Soviets. Uh, the parallels are unmistakable, and they were certainly communicating. Of course, the Soviet Union had diplomatic relations with Turkey, and they were actually very close in the 1920s. But more important than that, Sadum was communicating with Turkey. Sadum was communicating with the Turkish Presidency for Religious Affairs. Uh, Sadum, by within maybe the first five years of Khrushchev's drive to promote kind of Islamic outreach, he never called it that, but Islamic outreach to the third world, Sadum has official relations with something like 30 or 40 Islamic organizations around the world. So the people who work at Sadum are a relatively small number of people, uh, but I would argue that their small number uh, doesn't do credit to the symbolic significance that this chain of communication has. The fact that Sadum is sending students to study in Morocco and Egypt in the 1960s, uh, the fact that students from many Arab and Middle Eastern countries are coming to Tashkent not to study Islam, but to study medicine, actually, 
and not even uh, uh, they're not only going to Uzbekistan, they're going to Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan during this period as well. All of this suggests that even though the number of people involved is small, there is some kind of communication. There is some kind of feedback loop going on. Now, uh, to take that and definitively claim that one society was influencing another or one state was influencing another would require much more evidence, of course, probably in the form of either KGB archives or more likely um, interviews with some of these students uh, who uh, went back and forth. But the lines of communication were definitely open. There's no doubt about that. And I tried to make the case that the most important such line of communication was the one with Saudi Arabia a country with which the Soviet Union didn't have diplomatic relations at all. That Saddam effectively becomes the representative of the USSR in Saudi Arabia by virtue of the Hajj, by virtue of the fact that one part of Stalin's package of religious reforms was allowing a small number, maybe 20 or 25 Muslims in 1945, to go go on the Hajj. The numbers were very small, but there was actually communication between fairly prominent Islamic scholars in Central Asia and prominent Islamic scholars in Saudi Arabia every year from 1945 to 1991. That, I think, is a pretty critical mass of communication, a pretty critical mass of back and forth that is very interesting in its own right and is easy to overlook when we talk about Central Asia's isolation from the Islamic world. That is really interesting. Well, Aaron, we've taken up quite a bit of your time today, so I want to thank you for being on the podcast and ask you, the famous final question of New Books Network, what are you working on now? I would like my next pro- project to focus on uh, Islam and law in the Soviet Union. And I don't, uh, 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 Islamic law might be a part of that. But I am interested in this idea of uh, what becomes of the combination of Islamic and customary law that existed in Central Asia before the Soviet period when large numbers of uh, Muslim judges and Islamic scholars are killed or pushed underground, and when Islamic courts, courts are effectively abolished by the Soviet state. It uh, is impossible that thousands of years of jurisprudential history of Central Asia simply disappear overnight. So I'm interested in what actually happens in courtrooms when cases involving um, inheritance or adultery or polygamy or spousal abuse are being adjudicated. I'm interested in looking at those proceedings and finding out what the interaction is between this modern legal code that the Soviet state is trying to impose and the existing understandings of how these issues are supposed to be resolved. It's a big project, which I'm just starting. I don't anticipate the book will be out anytime soon, but it is definitely a big gap in our understanding of uh, Islam in the Soviet Union, and more broadly of what happens to Islamic institutions and Islamic law in the conditions of socialist modernity. So that's where I'm headed next. Well, it does sound like a fascinating project, and I know I can't wait to see when it's produced. Well, Aaron, thanks for being on the show today, and good luck. Thank you very much for having me and for your insightful questions. <laughs>